Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Day and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Suncor Energy third quarter 2021 financial results conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. Please be advised that today's conference may be recorded. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. If you require any further assistance, please press star and zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Trevor Bell, Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you, Operator, and good morning. Welcome to Suncorder's third quarter earnings call. With me this morning are Mark Little, President and Chief Executive Officer, and Alistair Cowan, Chief Financial Officer. Please note that today's comments contain forward-looking information. The actual results may differ materially from the expected results because of various risk factors and assumptions that are described in our third quarter earnings release, as well as our annual information form. Both are available on CDAR, EDGAR, and our website, suncor.com. Certain financial measures referred to in these comments are not prescribed by Canadian GAAP. For a description of these financial measures, please see our third quarter earnings release. Following formal remarks, we'll open up the call to questions. Now I'll hand it over to Mark for his comments. Great. Thanks, Trevor, and good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Suncor's third quarter results delivered in three key areas, operational excellence, increased shareholder returns, and significant debt reduction. Suncor delivered $2.6 billion of funds from operations for the third quarter, while also completing the most significant maintenance year in our history on budget. The downstream produced nearly $1 billion of funds from operations, which included approximately $80 million of FIFO gains. This performance marked the third best set of Q3 results for the downstream in its history. Year to date, we have reduced the company's net debt balance by more than $3 billion, and returned over $2.6 billion to shareholders in the forms of dividends and buybacks by allocating over 70% of our funds from operations, including the tax refund received earlier this quarter. Reviewing the progress we made on our commitments from earlier this year, our nine-month annualized cash return is 9%. We've bought back over 4% of the company's shares since the program's initiation in February. The company's net debt level has been returned to year-end 2019 levels, and we remain on target to deliver our capital in line with expectations. In short, we are meeting or exceeding our commitments. Our confidence in our operations and the pace in which we're executing our plan allows us to increase shareholder returns by doubling the current dividend to annually $1.68 per share, 
or back to the 2019 levels, increasing the buyback by a further 2% to 7% by February of 2022, all while expecting our net debt to be near the top end of our 2025 target range by this year end, given the favorable macro backdrop. Turning to operating performance, Upstream delivered 700,000 barrels per day of production in the third quarter. Oil Sands operations production of 370,000 barrels per day reflects the planned five-year U2 turnaround. This was partially mitigated by 90% utilization for in situ, in spite of completing the planned maintenance at Firebank. Looking at year-to-date cash operating costs of $25 per barrel Canadian, we are progressing extremely well towards the bottom end of our full-year cash operating costs per barrel guidance. Syncrude achieved 185,000 barrels a day of production with 91% utilization for the quarter and cash operating costs of $31 per barrel. At the end of the quarter, on September 30th, we assumed operatorship of Syncrude, a critical milestone towards achieving the previously communicated $100 million in annual synergies in the first six months of operatorship and $300 million in total annual synergies by the end of 2023. These synergies will contribute to achieve the cash operating cost target of $30 per barrel at Syncrude. Fort Hill's production of 51,000 barrels per day reflects a one-train operation. We have made significant progress on overburden removal and slope stability, and as a result, anticipate achieving full rates by year-end. We're right on plan with what we stated before, and we'll have both trains at full rates intermittently in November and December to ensure a seamless transition to full operating mode. Our expectation for 2022 cash operating costs per barrel is in the mid-20s, with an incremental 45,000 barrels per day of production. In our E&P operations, Q3 production of 94,000 barrels per day was an increase from Q2. However, our funds from operations of 360 million reflects an inventory build associated with the timing of cargo sales. The sale of Golden Eagle was completed on October 22nd with cash receipt of approximately $250 million U.S. In the downstream, you will recall that we completed significant maintenance at all of our refineries in the second quarter. And as a result, we're very well positioned to take advantage of the demand recovery in the third quarter and the refineries operated at 99% utilization with nearly $1 billion of funds from operations. Compared to the 3.8 to 3.9 billion for full year funds from operations in 2018 and 2019 from the downstream, the third quarter is in line with that run rate with slightly better cracking margins, but also with some significant headwinds. Average sweet and heavy differentials were $4 a barrel US narrower. The Canadian dollar was 5% stronger, and natural gas prices were 125% higher. In short, while the headline funds from operations this quarter is comparable to our 2018-2019 run rate, 
there were considerable headwinds that we were able to offset through strategic improvements and investments in our supply and trading and logistics assets to further our competitive advantage. As discussed during Investor Day, the investments we've made and continue to make to achieve our $2 billion of incremental free funds flow initiatives are building a business that's more resilient and stronger than ever before. As incremental demand continues to recover, we expect to capture higher margins. Reflecting back on the second and third quarter of this year, we delivered $5 billion of funds from operations, or nearly $3.50 per share despite completing the highest maintenance activity across base plants, Syncrude, and all of the refineries in our history, and with Fort Hills operating at one train. Our assets continue to operate at strong rates, which positions us for significant improvement to our free funds flow generation in the fourth quarter and into 2022 and beyond. I'll now hand it over to Alistair to go through our financial highlights. Thanks, Mark, and good morning, everyone. For the third quarter, we continue to exceed our plan to increase shareholder returns and reduce debt. We returned over $1 billion to shareholders in the form of $310 million in dividends and $700 million in share repurchases. During the quarter, our buyback amounted to 28 million shares, or that's 20% more than in Q2, at an average of $25 per share. In addition to the nine-month annualized cash return of 9%, we have also reduced our net debt balance by over $3 billion, and $2 billion of that came in Q3. Sands delivered approximately $1.6 billion of funds from operations during the quarter. Although price realizations were higher during the quarter, these were partly offset by higher royalties, especially at Firebag, which turned to post-payout during the quarter. We had anticipated this royalty change to be the middle of 2022. However, at current prices, post-payout has been achieved much sooner. So just to clarify, all our assets, except Fort Hills, are now in post-payout, thus the cash flow from these assets now fully reflects the royalty charges. As Mark mentioned, our oil sands operations cash operating costs continue to trend very well with year-to-date Q3 sitting at $25 per barrel, despite increasing natural gas costs. You can see uh, from the disclosures that high natural gas costs added over uh, just over $1 to our oil sands operations cash operating costs in the third quarter. But nearly half of this has been offset elsewhere in our business, including through higher power revenue. We have updated our natural gas sensitivity to reflect the $160 million funds from operations impact for every $1 Canadian per gigajoule change in ACO. This sensitivity update reflects our integrated model view and includes power revenue, which is correlated to and does mitigate a portion of the natural gas cost. The EMP segment generated $360 million of funds from operations with price realizations of approximately $90 Canadian per barrel, delivering $300 million of free funds flow net of capital expenditures. These results include an inventory build due to lifting schedules, which we expect to come through as additional funds flow in the fourth quarter. As Mark noted, we recorded our third best Q3 results in downstream's history, despite a less than normal business environment. 
I would like to put these results in the context of the demand. If I look at Q3 2021 versus Q3 2019, average product demand across Canada was down nearly 7%. But Suncor's sales channels remained relatively similar to the same period, Q3 2019. This strong performance is a considerable driver towards capturing higher margins and is a direct result of strategic investments in the supply, trading, and logistics assets. We expect this trend to continue into 2022, with Suncor's downstream capturing higher demand and higher margins and continuing to outperform the industry. Ending the third quarter, our net debt is $16.7 billion, which includes capital leases. With the Golden Eagle sale proceeds of approximately 200 US $250 million received in October, the net debt balance stands at $16.4 billion Canadian, similar to year-end 2019 levels. As it relates to our guidance, our only change in the, to the business environment for increasing commodity prices, which of course does increase our cash taxes and royalty ranges slightly. Lastly, as I look at our performance for the remainder of the year, we are on track or ahead on both the net debt and buybacks. On our investor day, we have outlined the five-year target to buy back approximately 12% of the outstanding shares. By the completion of the current program in February 2022, we expect to purchase 7% of the float, or said another way, achieving 60% of our planned buybacks over five years. With that, I'll pass you back to Mark. Great. Thanks, Alistair. With downstream delivering strong results, our assets operating at expected rates, and Fort Hills ramping up as planned, I'm really confident in our near and long-term business outlook. Further, we are resolute in driving down our cash break-even by capturing the $2 billion of annual free funds flow initiatives and crude synergies we detailed at our investor day. Although I do acknowledge that the impact of higher commodity prices are impacting both revenue and cost side of our business. In 2021, we are on track to deliver $450 million of incremental annual funds flow, largely through margin enhancements. For example, the Firebag and Edmonton de-bottlenecks, our trading optimizations, lower reclamation spend, and interconnecting pipelines. Meanwhile, we are also on track to buy back the highest annual percentage of stock in the history of the company while expecting to reduce our net debt by almost $5 billion by the end of this year and be at the top end of our 2025 target range. Next year, through significant cost savings via improved productivity and synergies and further margin enhancements, we expect to generate an additional $400 million of annual funds flow. Additionally, on capital, we expect to be $300 million lower than the $5 billion ceiling we discussed at our investor day. As I mentioned earlier, given our execution to date and the confidence in achieving our plan, the board has increased the dividend back to 2019 level. The next dividend will be payable on December 24, 2021. This dividend will increase uh, and set a new quarterly dividend payment at $0.42 cents per share, up from the current $0.21 cents per share. The board has also increased the current buyback program to 7% of outstanding shares, 
a further 2% increase to be purchased by February 7, 2022. We fully expect to renew the current share buyback program upon its expiry on February 7, and anticipate continuing the buyback program at approximately 5% of outstanding shares at that date. Even with a significant increase to the dividend and continuation of the buyback program, we are planning to accelerate the pace of achieving the net debt targets. This reflects our confidence in the performance of our asset base and the strong free funds flow generation across our integrated model, taking advantage of strong commodity prices. To put this into perspective, Suncor today is on track to deliver similar debt levels and a lower number of outstanding shares than it had in 2015. However, with 35% higher production, a resilient downstream, and a lower break-even. Our integrated model is stronger today than ever before, and we are now well into the execution of optimization strategy that maximizes the value from this model. As I look forward, I'm confident in our plan to ensure long-term value for our shareholders and a stronger and more resilient future for Suncor. With that, Trevor, I'll turn it back to you. Great. Thank you, Mark and Alistair. I'll turn the call back to the operator to take some questions. Operator? As a reminder, to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. One moment. Our first question is from Neil Menta of Goldman Sachs. Please proceed. Good morning, team, and congratulations on the announcement here today. What you're talking about, Mark, is a 7% buyback yield, or up to that level, and now a 6% dividend yield. Can you kind of talk about what changed in the room to move from the 25% CAGR to this increased return of capital strategy? And just talk about the oil price bands at which we can think about you executing it. Certainly, at current constructive commodity price environments, it makes sense. But if we dip lower again, uh, do you still see the ability to execute uh, towards the top end of that capital returns yield? Yeah, thanks, Neil. I appreciate it. It's interesting because uh, when we looked at it, there were really four factors that we looked at when we thought about setting this uh, dividend increase. First of all, the confidence in safe and reliable operations, and, and you've seen that in executing the maintenance program or on Fort Hill's ramp up and, and the progress that we're making there. Secondly, the downstream is, is back and delivering on the cash flow that we expected that business to do. We haven't seen that for some time given the impact of COVID. So it's providing significant and stable cash flow going forward. Uh, execution of our $2 billion of funds from operations, and you can see that in the comments I made about the downstream and it delivering this cash flow despite the significant headwinds that I had highlighted. And finally, uh, when you look at it, uh, all of the cash allocation other than our investments is being accelerated. So you've seen it in our share buybacks. Uh, when Alistair was talking about the share buybacks, we're now working on the 2023 share buybacks by the time we get to the end of this year from what we said before. 
we're, we're actually working to get to the top end of our 2025 debt target. So all of the cash and, and allocation of capital is being accelerated in all areas, and we felt it was appropriate to do that in the dividends as well. So this is fully consistent with the 25% CAGR that we outlined. And in fact, this is 75% of what we said we would deliver by 2025. Um, so it's not inconsistent, it's just accelerated, just like it is on debt repayment and share buybacks. And then Mark, can you talk a little bit about the oil price bands and how, how we should think about the durability of this strategy, even in a lower, lower commodity price environment, if that plays out? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Neil. It's, so when you look at uh, the durability of it, we went back and then looked at this around, okay, well, what does this mean at, at the $55 oil that we talked at? And, and so given the fact that we've made so much progress on debt, one of, the, one of the challenges at $55 is you don't have the cash flow to restructure the debt of the company and to be able to buy back your shares and such. So given the fact that it's all accelerated, if we went to $55 tomorrow, this is sustainable. We still generate free cash flow, and we can still continue to push forward on our debt and our share buybacks through that. So we view that it's very sustainable. Uh, the, the other piece associated with it, if you look at the uh, work that we've done, we said – we were just 465 million of our 2 billion has been delivered this year, so just under $500 million. We have a similar amount next year associated with it. And then with cutting our capital by 300 million versus the cap that we outlined, this also gives us uh, over this period of time approximately $1.2 billion essentially that we've turned over into the dividends. So, even in this environment, we view that we're earning our way to actually deliver this uh, dividend increase, albeit very accelerated, just like we're seeing in debt and in share buybacks. Thank you. And then the follow-up question is around Fort Hills. That's the next big catalyst from our perspective to help to, to reset the story. And uh, it sounds like, based on your comments, you're feeling good about the progression. I know, Mark, you've been spending okay. some time up there. But can you, can you give us uh, an on-the-ground perspective and, and the milestones we should be watching for to get confidence uh, you're getting back to two trains? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Neil. It's interesting with Fort Hills because – We've seen some significant progress. The team's really doing well. Uh, we're moving an awful lot of dirt there at this stage of the game. It's, it's interesting just how much this has changed. And so the whole south face, we have all sorts of equipment in there working, so we've really been able to deal with that. So we've been able to uh, manage that whole piece associated with it. And they're getting ready now to do test runs, as I mentioned, both in November and then we'll start staging the asset up in December. So you'll start to see nominations, particularly in December. You'll see an increase in noms as we get ready to, uh, and shipping on the pipelines, as we get ready to bring that asset into full production before year end. And so, and we also remain on track to, to achieve our $20 a barrel cost target in 2024. And next year, we expect it to be in the mid-20s. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Our next question comes from Greg Party of RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed. 
thanks. Good morning, and and I'd echo what Neil said. I mean, just a very very strong uh, strong quarter. So I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but does the Mark does the reset of the dividend uh, now negate consideration for the the typical adjustment that you would do at, at at year end? In other words, are we good sort of on the dividend for the next year or so, or or would you go through a normal planning cycle as you as you as you go into year end and into next year? Yeah, Greg, thanks for your question. Uh, you know, and I guess some of this is kind of picking up on my answer to Neil that when we did the investor day, we talked about the 25% CAGR through 2025. And essentially, this accelerates and delivers three quarters of that uh, now, a, a short time after our investor day. So, and we did, you know, we felt we had highlighted that this is going to be front end loaded, but obviously, this is a lot more front end loaded than we ever dreamt although the commodity price is significantly higher. So all of these things, debt, repayment, share buybacks and such, has all been significantly accelerated. You know, the management and board regularly assess our progress on where we're at and look at shareholder returns and how we're positioned. All that said, given the significance of the move and stuff, we're really not expecting that uh, the board would choose to make any further decisions coming up in the next quarter. Okay, appreciate that. Very, very clear. The other thing is, I mean, you, you know, you look at all the moving parts in the oil market right now. Obviously, cost inflation, just costs in general, and and I guess the thinking on your end had been that you need a 35, you know, TI break even to to you know to cover sustaining capex and so on. With the dividend adjustment and all the other moving pieces, is is how should we think about that break even price now? Yeah. It, that's a that's actually a great question. Um, obviously, this is around affordability, right? It's one of the reasons that we had the break even and looked at doing that along, and this included all our operating costs, sustaining capital, and the dividend. and And our focus was to be able to pay that in a thirty five dollar world with substantially higher prices and the current environment and such, including things like increased natural gas and FX rates and everything else, obviously our break-even is higher than that. It, essentially, everybody's is that's consuming energy because energy's up so much. Um, but we remain very confident in delivering our $2 billion. But in this high-priced environment and very high commodity prices, uh, you know, that's actually a challenge. So our, our break-even is higher, but we don't see that as an issue in this environment. Obviously, if the entire energy market uh, declined, our break-even will decline as well. So you'll see us continuing to uh, work on changing the structure of the company going forward. We lowered our capital in 2022, and, and we're confident that we can accelerate other aspects of our five-year plan. So we haven't given up on it, but in the short term, for sure, our break-even is higher than the $35. Okay. Makes sense. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Thank you. Our next question comes from Phil Gresh of J.P. Morgan. Please proceed. Hey, good morning. Um, my first question, just to follow up on some of your balance sheet commentary, <clears throat> um, the 12 to $15 billion uh, long-term target, um, is, is that something that you would consider also uh, you know, bringing down with, um, you know, with the excess cash flow, or would you rather kind of keep that target, maybe hit the low end of that target and return the incremental cash to shareholders? How do you kind of compare and contrast those two ideas? 
Yeah, thanks, Phil. Um, anyway, as we look at it, we, you know, you recall we set two targets out there. We, we set a 2025 target of 12 to 15 billion, and as Mark said, we're actually on track to achieve the 15, the top end of that range this year, so that's an acceleration. We will continue to drive that debt down over the next few years. Uh, but we also set a 2030 target, which was $9 to $12 billion. And we will continue to drive to that. And we, if we have a commodity price environment whereby we can drive that down to those levels faster, uh, we will do that. But we're also cognizant of, of uh, ensuring the shareholders get their return. And you saw us make a comment that uh, free cash flow after CapEx and dividend will be allocated 50% to buybacks and 50% to debt reduction next year. That would be pretty consistent going forward. Got it, got it, okay. And then just to follow up on some of the operating cost uh, commentary, um, acknowledging the higher price environment leads to some inflationary pressures for everybody. Um, you know, it looks like your OPEX this year based on your guidance probably will be around $11 billion, uh, for the total company. Um, is it, I guess is it fair to think that you know, from there, we should be looking at these, call it $400 million of, of uh, free funds flow improvement would be off that baseline as we move forward into 22, as opposed to, you know, looking at the absolute targets from May because, the, the, you know, the cost environment has changed or just any further color on that would be helpful. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This year, build your credit history with the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. No credit checks to apply. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members FDIC. Chime checking account and 200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the overall uh, cost structure. It's interesting when you look at OS&G because, as Alistair pointed out, we changed the natural gas sensitivity. It was... For every $1 change in natural gas, it was $240 million impact, and we've revised it down to 160 But these two pieces of it, one is the power revenue that comes, shows up in a revenue line, and, and the uh, costs actually show up in our OS&G costs. I mean, this is actually one of the complexities of it, so you don't really see it when you look at our op unit operating costs. You see some of the impact of that, but it's mitigated by the revenue so we're, we're far more focused on our unit operating costs and staying on track to deliver the cost outlooks that we've had associated with it. And so we are seeing, you know, some impacts associated with that. A lot of the challenge with our $2 billion this year is a lot of it showed up on the revenue side and, uh, and very little in the cost side. So you're not seeing the movement in the operating costs that uh, some expect, because I think some people have just taken this that it's all coming out of costs and such. So anyway, th that's one of the challenges. I don't know, Alistair, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's important to, to realize, you know, obviously we've had some impacts uh, uh, this year, but I think as we look forward to next year, I would say there's, you know, a couple of things that are that we're focused on and working our way through availability of labor. I think you're seeing that across the industry. 
Uh, it's not just a, a sum core issue. I would say that we're probably in an advantaged position compared to others. We have a largely insourced uh, workforce, which limits our exposure to service providers, where I think we've seen others see pretty significant uh, cost increases. We're not experiencing those to any great extent because of that largely insourced uh, uh, labor force. Um, the general uh, CPI in, in Canada is around about three and a half to four and a half percent. So as we work through our planning and, and we get to guidance in December, we're also going to give you some more details around those costs. So uh, I think there's more to come on this, but uh, I, I'm not expecting a significant increase in, in costs here. We will be offsetting that inflation by some of the, um, partially offsetting that inflation by some of these uh, additional cost reductions that Mark talked about. Just one last one, just on the operating cost. You said this is obviously the biggest turnaround year uh, in history. Would you say that there was, you know, like a material impact on costs, or more, was it more just, the, you know, the loss volumes um, that came from that that would be an incremental tailwind in 22? Thank you. Well, Phil, you actually see it on both sides of the coin. Uh, part of it is actually the turnaround itself obviously has some impact on the volume side, uh, but you see a bunch of this in capital, because a lot of this sustaining capital is actually done uh, on the work that we're doing physically on the assets. That said, we work really hard to try and normalize that from year to year so that we don't have these huge swings in sustaining capital and such associated with it. So I would say you're going to see it more on the volumetric side than you would see it uh, year to year on the capital side. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Our next question comes from Dennis Fong of CIBC World Markets. Please proceed. Hi, good morning, and, and thanks for taking my questions. Um, a, a couple of them already, have already been asked, but uh, there's two that I have quickly on Fort Hills that I'd like to just prod about, and, and hopefully I'm not getting too ahead of myself here, is first, um, just with respect to uh, the components around the wall stability uh, kind of fixes and so forth, has there any has there been any changes in terms of mine plan um, going forward as well as has that changed the thought process around any debottlenecking or further optimization once this uh, project is able to ramp up to full capacity um, as well as maybe timing around uh, hearing about incremental uh, debottlenecking or efficiencies that you could gain yeah thanks Dennis. Um, it's interesting with this because the mine plan has changed uh, just because the south face was so rich with ore. We took a little different approach around how we are planning to mine that, and, and obviously we're well into that now. There's been an enormous amount of work done since in the last quarter, and, and you know, compliments to the team. They've really been going hard at it and uh, making tremendous progress. You know, that said, and, and to some degree I would say it's a little bit of a separate issue um, when you set that aside. That's really around getting this asset ramped up, getting it to full rates, and delivering on 90% of nameplate capacity that we've always stated. Then the issue about the debottleneck is there are opportunities, or we believe there will be opportunities to debottleneck the facility. On a few occasions, we've had it running to full rates, so that's very positive. And, uh, and we've made some tremendous progress uh, looking at the facility and such. 
we're looking for this really to be the first year coming up in 2022 where we'll run the facility at 90% of nameplate capacity. Through that, we are getting, the, the more we run the facility and in the more circumstances and conditions we run it, we see more and more opportunity around and a better understanding about how we could be bottleneck the facility. But anytime you put this much capital on the ground, there's an opportunity to uh, de-bottleneck and line it out. It's always a little different than what it looked like on paper or in the math models. So that's what we'll be paying a lot of attention to over the next year, and we fully expect that we will find opportunity going forward. Great, great, thanks. Um, and then maybe shifting gears, uh, just to discuss uh, Syncrude here. Now that um, you've, I mean, not spent a lot of time specifically operating the asset that you've given the timing of when you've taken over operatorship, I was just curious in terms of, we'll call it the first nine months of this year, as well as kind of what you understand with respect to the assets already, um, given your interest in it. Um, have you found anything with respect to the interconnect beyond um, being able to showcase stronger utilization, uh, help improve the, the quality of the feedstock into the Syncrude facility, as well as mitigate downtime between both base plant and Syncrude? Um, is there anything further that we need to understand about that? Um, just given that it's operated for uh, several months this year thus far. Yeah, Dennis, I, I don't think that there's anything beyond improving the feedstocks, increasing the utilization and driving higher profit than, than what you've outlined. Um, but those are super significant, right? <laughs> this is, and, and we're seeing more and more opportunities. I think one of the things we're really excited about is we essentially had two separate organizations looking at the assets, trying to identify opportunities and then drive a, you know, a discussion about, okay, well, how could we do this? Can we get a deal, get things going and everything else? Now we essentially have it all in the same organization. So we think that we'll be able to drive up the utilization of the asset and really uh, leverage and maximize the value of the interconnecting pipeline. This is our first year. We've made some good progress. It's interesting how the opportunities come and go. Sometimes they're in very short term, but uh, no, we're excited about the interconnecting pipeline. It's a huge lever in helping to improve the Syncrude asset. And, uh, and we think that with operatorship, this even sets a better foundation to maximize its value. Great. I appreciate the color, and congrats on the accelerated returns, uh, as well as hitting your, your target goals uh, ahead of time. Thank you. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you. Our next question comes from Menno Halsoff of TD Securities. Please proceed. Uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks for taking my, my questions. Uh, so there's lots of chatter out there on the impact of higher natural gas prices on refinery processing costs for heavy oil in particular. And it sounds like that's been a key driver of widening heavy differentials as refineries bid up a light feedstock over, over heavy. So, so my question for you is, is how are higher gas prices impacting your downstream margins and decisions on whether or not to, sorry, not, not whether or not, but whether to process, process lights, uh, lights versus heavies. And I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the downstream side of things in particular. I understand that you did provide that $160 million sensitivity for, uh, for natural gas for the, for, for the court. 
Yeah, Menno, it's, it's interesting because I actually think that to a large degree, you're seeing that commentary come out of Europe where they're paying, you know, orders of magnitude higher natural gas prices uh, because th this is an area that has very constrained access to natural gas, essentially no storage. Their, their storage volumes and are way below historical levels. And, uh, and I would say to some degree, the region is struggling with uh, energy access just in its entirety. Um, so I, I really don't see it. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that we kind of pointed out is that in my downstream commentary, we talked about delivering a Q3, the third highest in our, in our history. But we also talked about, yeah, but one of the challenges is natural gas prices up 125%. The Canadian dollar is up 5%, uh, and, and you've seen uh, much narrower spreads than what we've seen by $4 on the light heavy. So, so I, I really don't think in North America this is really a dynamic, but in Europe you see it much more. And so, you know, maybe there's been a little bit widening of the differential. The beauty of our model is, we, you know, our whole model is designed that, look, whether the differentials are wide or narrow, or whether the prices are absolute high or not, we actually can extract the money within our model associated with it. And so we, we view that our model actually helps protect us against this. Um, just as we talked about on the power side, it's one of the reasons we modified our sensitivity before we were just showing you the impact on OSG, but the offset here is in revenue. So we think we're very well positioned to be able to manage this. Um, but in North America, I don't see that as a really significant factor, although it may have some impact. And, and just on a related note, um, would you ever consider getting back into the into the gas business? I know it was a big part of the business model back in the day, just to, to hedge out that price risk, or is it just it's just not uh, enough? There's just not enough sensitivity to to even have that be a consideration. Yeah, Menno, it's interesting because I think you'll see that our model, although very unconventional to a lot of folks, um, you, we, we see that we actually have impacts. As you see the cogen come on, our, our sensitivity to natural gas will change again and be mitigated further associated with it. I, you know, I, when, you, when you ask, would you ever, I, I mean, I, maybe I'm getting old enough to know that to never answer the question in an absolute in that. I don't, maybe there's a circumstance Obviously, we're a big consumer of natural gas, and uh, we continue to look at our positioning within the markets all the time. Our, our primary focus at this stage of the game is how to mitigate, obviously, increased uh, natural gas prices, and, and power is the way that we're, we're doing it. And obviously, we're further investing to manage that further. So would we ever? Maybe we would, but not at this time. Okay. Thanks for that, Mark. Okay. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Our next question comes from Manav Gupta of Credit Suisse. Please proceed. Um, hey, guys. So I wanted to switch gears a little. You and some of the other bigger operators in Canada have come out with projects on carbon capture and sequestration. And I understand it's pretty early, but just trying to understand, like, what kind of support do you 
would need from the government of Canada to move ahead with this? Is it a firm carbon pricing? Is it basically supporting you with some kind of capex, you know, where they pitch in? So I'm just trying to understand as these negotiations are proceeding, what kind of help do you expect from government to move ahead with the carbon capture program? Yeah, thanks, Manav. Um, obviously, I mean, this is an area we're quite excited about. Uh, obviously, we are a large emitter of CO2, and uh, and it's been fantastic to see the alignment amongst the industry peers and, and really being able to get an unprecedented alliance in, in the history of our industry within Canada to be able to uh, chart a clear path moving forward. That, that plan is to take the whole industry to net zero by 2050, um, obviously, there's a lot to that plan, but one of the key points in that is carbon capture and sequestration. We, we realized as we worked on it that as we worked as an industry, if we work together, we can drive down the cost significantly. And this is about keeping the industry competitive. If you look at Norway as an example, two-thirds of the capital and two-thirds of the operating costs for the first 10 years are actually provided by the government. In the United States with Q45, we actually have incentives to be able to do carbon sequestration and uh, that deals with both capital and operating costs. So we need to have something that's competitive. Uh, we, we want to ensure that we can't afford to be investing below our weighted average cost of capital, of course. And, uh, and so we're working to try and figure out both with the provincial government and the federal government what's the path forward. And it's not just all monetary. Some of this actually gets into access to poor space and those sorts of things. Um, the great thing is, is we, we have a plan and I think we have a great relationship with both the federal and provincial government and we're looking to uh, get alignment so that we can move forward. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, and a question here on the refining side. Um, you were generating free cash in refining even during the worst of pandemic, and now obviously you're generating a lot of free cash from refining. But if you look at your refining, it's actually three parts. It's refining, it's logistics, and it's retail. And I wanted to understand from the retail perspective, is this a business you want to grow? Is this a business you want to keep as it is? Or is it a business that you could potentially look to divest at some stage? So if you can help us understand your views on your retail business within refining. Yeah, it, it's interesting, Manav, because we we actually talked about this on our investor day. So I think there's some good material there that uh, helps provide uh, some context to it. If it, I would actually add a fourth piece to this is our trading capability, um, and you saw that in the last year is that we were able to run disproportionately high utilizations in the refineries, leveraging our logistics network and our trading capability to deliver free cash flow when nobody else was. And, and uh, I think in our investor day, we talked about how we delivered twice as much operating cash flow in refining than our next nearest competitor within North America because of the combination of all of this capability that we've outlined. Retail is an important part of that. We have the number one brand in the country. We have uh, the largest, um, coast-to-coast -coast network. We have direct relationships with the customers that we can leverage as we think about adding energy uh, options to the future. So we see this as a, an important part of our, our model. 
and uh, and and so I think I would just refer you back to that. Our team can actually walk you through some of those slides and stuff we did on Investor Day, but you know we we think this is an important part, and and we recognize that a lot of people have just sold this off and taken the cash out of it. Um, but we don't think that's the right answer for Suncor. And and the more we see the integrated piece associated with it, this was very helpful when we went through COVID. Um, anyway, that that's kind of where we're at with it, um, Manav, and and that's where we've that's why we've continued to position and continued to invest in this part of the business. No, no, I completely agree. I don't think it should be moved out. It's an integral part of the business. It gives you that access to the end markets where placing your barrel is important. Um, my last and final quick question here is, 2021 was a year of very heavy turnaround for you, upstream and downstream. As we look at 2022, uh, do we think uh, the level of maintenance in both upstream and downstream should be lower? H how do you expect to run in 2022 at both upstream and downstream versus 2021? Yeah, it's it's interesting when you look at it, the downstream and upstream have lower turnaround activity. We still have a lot of maintenance going on, uh, but we have lower turnaround activity than what we had in both sides of the house associated with it. Syncrude still has some substantial maintenance and turnaround work within the year. Um, and Firebag actually is, is gonna be off. Um, we have a big piece of work associated with Firebag I think the impact something like 15,000 barrels, and and so and you keep in mind Golden Eagle with it out, that's about a 10,000 barrel hit. So there's puts and takes across the platform. Turnarounds are lower, but we're still executing a bunch of work. And some of this is what I said earlier to one of the previous questions, just about trying to flatten out and optimize our sustaining capital going forward, so we don't have huge swings in that. So. So anyway, so that's where we're at. The, you know, the beauty of it is that overall, you know, as we talked about during Investor Day, this optimization phase, 40% less capital than the growth phase we had. And, uh, and next year, as we've highlighted, we're spending $300 million below our 2022 ceiling. So, uh, you know, I, I think we're, we're trying to manage this well so that we can continue to deliver uh, very strong returns to our shareholders. And thank you for taking my questions. Thank you. Our next question comes from Harry Matier of Barclays. Thanks. Um, Alistair, I think this one's for you. You know, what, one of the questions we often get is the, the concept of you know, net debt versus gross debt, and you have net debt targets for 2025 and 2030, as you've laid out, but your capital allocation framework for next year also indicates paying down debt with cash, and presumably there's a limit to how, how high you want the cash balance to go, um, you know, as opposed to just doing gross debt reduction. So curious how you're thinking about that. And then the, the follow-up is, you know, when I look at your debt schedule, you still have a couple billion of short-term debt, um, but at these sorts of prices, you spin through that pretty quick. So how are you thinking about the willingness um, to do more LME, such as do, did with the 24s in the third quarter, you know, maybe not paying make holes, but, you know, waterfall tenders, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question, Harry. I mean, I think you're, you're right on there. You know, net debt versus gross debt, you know, we obviously don't want our cash balance to grow significantly, but somewhere in the two to three billion is probably reasonable. Uh, just to you know, emphasize to everybody, when we talk about net debt and 
our debt in total, we, we include our leases of about $3 billion, which is not a companies in the U.S. don't do the same thing. I would say that as we're looking at all options as we go forward, we have short-term debt, we'll pay down, we've got some maturities, but yeah, I think we'll be looking at liquidity management events so that we can uh, uh, take some of that longer-term debt out. You'll see as manage the debt profile. You know, you may see as issue some longer-term debt uh, just to term out and increase maturities at the same time as we're taking shorter-term debt out. But all those options are certainly on the table. Got it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Roger Reed of Wells Fargo. Please proceed. Hey, good morning, and uh, congrats on the on the better results. I uh, admit to missing the first part of this call. We had quite a number of, of reports this morning. But I would like to come back to the decision to reinstate the the dividend to you know the, the pre-reduction level. What the what was the thinking kind of at the time of the cut, and what's the thinking today, bringing it all the way back? I, I, one of the reasons I asked, we expected a dividend raise next year, but we didn't really think you'd get all the way back. So I'm just trying to understand the confidence level that you have here, and and how that all came together. Yeah, thanks, Roger. Appreciate it. R really, if you go back to the dividend cut, and I think we've been through this on several occasions, is, you know, our, our focus was, hey, we're in a global pandemic. It's having a, a dramatic effect on global demand. And our view was, is we needed to keep the company financially strong. We took that decision. Essentially, any company, in our analysis, any company that cut the dividend is underperformed in the market. Um, but then when you look at it, we really looked instead, there were four key factors when we looked at uh, reinstating the dividend. One is just our confidence in the safe and reliable operations. Uh, we've just concluded the most significant maintenance year in the history of the company. Fort Hills is on track to ramp up. And so the business is looking really strong. And then when you look at consumer demand, uh, although it's off a little bit, you're seeing the downstream recover and providing significant and stable cash flows as we look to the future. And so we, we saw the downstream deliver in line in the third quarter with what we saw in 2018 and 2019. It's the third best Q3 in the history of the company for the downstream, despite challenges of higher dollar and such. And then the last piece, um, or the other two pieces is, our, our confidence in the execution of delivering on our $2 billion of free funds flow, $465 million this year, and we're on track to deliver that, and, and a, another amount uh, similar to that next year. So that's going very well. And then the last one is really, when you look at our share buybacks and paying down our debt, we're working to, and Alistair went through this, is when you look at debt, we're looking to be at the top end of our 2025 debt targets on net debt uh, by the end of this year. We're, we're actually now looking to buy back up to 7% of our shares, and we're working on the 2023 share buybacks that we talked about at Investor Day. So we're just taking advantage of the high commodity price environment. We've made so much progress on restructuring the debt and such, our view was is we needed to keep the dividends up at the same pace. So you're seeing that what we talked about on Investor Day, the dividend increase is 75% of the dividend increase we talked about doing between now and 2025. 
but you know, it's it's in line with the progress we're making on share buybacks and debt. So, thanks for your question. Yeah, could could I follow up just an operational question? There's there's been um, kind of a crude diff question. You know, a lot of improvements in pipeline volumes to the U.S. with some of the stuff going on with Line Three. I'll presume Line Five doesn't face any particular issues, and then obviously we've got the the pipeline of the West Coast expansion. Can you just give us an idea of how you think about differentials moving, you know, whether it's the the light or the heavy crudes down south, and then you know, I understand you haven't faced some of the same differential issues that others have, the transportation issues. But, you know, a better market is a better market. Just how we should think about that affecting Suncor as we look forward over the next couple of years and how that maybe factors into your cash flow expectations, if it does at all. Yeah, Roger, I mean, I think to some degree this goes right to the heart of our model. Uh, predicting differentials is very challenging. We've seen that in all these different markets. Uh, we saw an in inventory build in Q2, which I actually found a bit surprising because, you know, it was, uh, there was lots of maintenance that was happening in the second quarter within the industry and, and such. And so it was seasonally high when you look at it relative to the last three years. And, uh, and then, you know, when you get into the, my comments in the prepared remarks and such, you saw the downstream perform really well with narrower diffs, uh, strong Canadian dollar, and a, and a much higher uh, gas price. When, I think there's several factors that are actually driving diffs around. You know, uh, Greg actually pointed one out in his in his question about natural gas and whether that's affecting lights and heavies and demand for lights. I think in some markets it is. I don't see it as a significant factor in North America. You're seeing increased crude coming in from OPEC. I think most of that's going to be on the heavy side. And then and then on the positive for narrowing the diffs, you're seeing better access with line three coming on. So, so there's push and takes to it. We don't see a dramatic effect in the diffs one way or the other. The issue with it for us is we're fairly indifferent. We have an integrated model. It's designed to be able to pick up the cash either in the upstream or the downstream, depending on where the diff is. And so we really don't focus on it all that much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I Thanks, would now Roger. like to turn the call back to Trevor Bell for closing remarks. Great. Thank you, operator, and thanks, everyone, for attending the call. I know it's a busy part of earnings season, so I appreciate your support, and we're around all day if you have any follow-up questions. Thanks again, operator. Thank you. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating, and you may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.